Hello and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. In the last episode, I finished by talking about the fact that Mr. Borden didn't have a will. He's rich. He thinks about money all the time. His goal in life has been to make money and amass a fortune. He knows that his daughters do not get along with his wife. They all live under the same roof. And this has been going on for at least five years. The last five years have been particularly tense because he made a gift to his wife without telling his daughters. They found out. They got mad. They confronted him. He tried to make it up to them. He gave them some valuable property, but that didn't solve the problem. This created a schism. This split has not healed. And as a result of this anger, the distrust that his daughters feel, the anger and resentment that his daughters feel, because of that, Lizzie now calls her stepmother, Mrs. Borden, to her face and refers to her as Mrs. Borden, when up to that point, up to five years earlier, she had always called her mother. And now Emma and Lizzie basically refuse to eat at the same time as their father and stepmother. So they wait till Mr. and Mrs. Borden are done eating, and then they go down and ask to be served. This is a pretty tense, unpleasant environment. So Mr. Borden doesn't make any effort to ease the tension. He makes no effort to address this problem. He simply ignores it. He acts like it's not happening. He acts like it isn't a big deal. He acts like it's not something that he can do anything about. That's not a good idea. He certainly could have sat down with his daughters and said, number one, I've got to take care of your stepmother. Please understand that. She's been my wife for almost 30 years. You can't expect me to leave her nothing. I've got to make sure that she has a comfortable life, whether you like it or not. But on top of that, even if I didn't want to take care of her, she'd be entitled to take a third of my estate. That's how the law works in Massachusetts. So accept it. If she survives me, she will get a third of the estate. I understand she's probably going to leave that money to her younger half-sister. You're probably not going to get that when she dies. And I can, can see how that might bother you, but that's how it works. I can't do anything about it. Please, let's just accept it. Having said all that, I'm going to make sure that both of you have enough money to live a nice lifestyle, a comfortable life. What I'm going to do is I'm going to draft a will that says that your stepmother gets a third of my estate and that you each take a third. Now, if your stepmother dies first, if I survive her, you each get half of my estate. And that's the best I can do for you. I promise this is the plan. I promise I won't change it. You can rest assured. And this is the best I can do for you guys. And I think in all fairness, you should be fairly happy with this. You'd be pretty happy with this. This isn't a bad deal for you, both of you. And let's try to move on here. Let's try to make things a little more tolerable here in the house. Let's try to be a little more pleasant, make more of an effort over each other. He doesn't do that. He doesn't talk to them. He doesn't tell them his plans. He leaves them in this state of anxiety, this combination of anxiety and anger that they feel towards him and towards their stepmother. The other thing is, what's curious to me is that he doesn't seem concerned about possible litigation between his daughters and his wife after he dies. He might think to himself, if I die in test eight, everybody gets a third. It's pretty simple. I don't have to draft a will. If I draft a will, I have to tell them about it, and then they may be upset, and I don't want to deal with that. So I'll just leave things the way they are, and when I die, they all get a third, and they're all taken care of. 
The problem is he owns a lot of real estate and that complicates things. That real estate has to be apportioned. It has to be valued. It has to be divided up. And there's a good chance that his daughters are going to be unhappy. They're going to say they're getting shortchanged or his wife is going to feel that way and that they're going to be suing each other. And I would think that the idea of having his hard-earned money, his estate being burned up in a lawsuit, having lawyers pocketing this money that he's worked so hard to accumulate, I would think that would be a pretty good motivation to get this will done and get everything straightened out and settled. He could have gone to a lawyer and said, what's the simplest way for me to give my wife and my daughters one third of my estate and to minimize the chances of litigation? And his lawyer would have said, leave instructions to sell all your real estate. I know you don't want to. I know you love the idea of having this real estate empire and having your family hang on to it. But if you really want to simplify things and avoid litigation, that's what you need to do. But he doesn't make this plan. He's not thinking ahead. He's avoidant. This guy is avoidant. He has avoidant tendencies. And that's a problem. And because he's not addressing things head on, this anger, this resentment, this dislike that his daughters feel, and I think to a certain degree that his wife feels in return, this just festers and builds. And he pretends like it's not there. He just acts like there's no problem. He doesn't talk about it. He doesn't address it. He would rather live in this tense, unpleasant, hostile environment than he would to address this head on. So let me talk about a few other things in terms of how he handled money and business decisions that I think support this theory that he was avoidant. Remember that he dropped out of the church over this incident where the trustees wanted to buy his property. He had some undeveloped real estate and they approached him. One of the trustees was sent to talk to him and ask him whether he would be willing to sell this land to the church. And they couldn't work out a deal. He quoted a price and the trustees declined to buy it at that price. And he quit the church. Clearly, the church wanted a deal out of him. The trustees wanted some kind of deal. That's obvious because otherwise they would have paid the asking price. I assume Mr. Borden had enough sense not to grossly overinflate the value of a piece of property. He wants to sell the property. He wants to be realistic. So when they ask him for a price, he's going to quote them a fairly reasonable, realistic, fair market price. So it's clear that they wanted something different from him, but they didn't say that to him. They didn't go to him and say, Andrew, can you donate this property to the church? Or Andrew, if you won't donate it, can you sell it to us for cost without taking a profit? But they don't do that. And I think they outsmarted themselves. They thought if they went to him and said, give us a price that he would be shamed into donating the property or he would suddenly rise to the occasion and become magnanimous and go, oh, guys, guys, I wouldn't ever expect the church to pay fair market value for this property. I'll, I'll sell it to you for cost. But that didn't happen. So the deal never happens. The trustee comes back to him and says, we're not going to buy it. And at that point, if he hadn't already figured it out, at that point, Andrew puts two and two together and he realizes that this was not about buying his property for the fair market price. This was about getting it donated or getting it for a steep discount. And he's mad. He's pissed off. He thinks to himself, they set me up here. What They don't understand me. They don't know me. They don't know that my whole motivation in life is to make money. They don't understand how important it is for me to make a profit. They don't get that about me. 
If they want me to donate something, they need to say that. If they want me to sell them something at a steep discount, they have to say that. If they come to me and say, give us a price for this property as if they want to pay the market value, I'm going to quote the price. And now I look greedy. I look like a fool. This wasn't my idea. I didn't approach them and try to sell this to them. They came to me and now they're making me look bad. They're making me look greedy when they couldn't even come to me and tell me what they wanted. So he's pissed off and he's embarrassed. And he knows that the trustees all know what happened. Every single trustee knows exactly what happened here. And the trustees know everybody in the congregation. And he knows that word is going to go through the congregation about what happened. And he knows that the trustees are going to tell their version of this. And there's going to be a lot of eye rolling and a lot of head shaking. And he knows that when he comes in on Sunday morning, that people are going to look at him and say, that cheap bastard, there he is. He wouldn't even donate this piece of land. He could afford it. He's rich. He's trying to get money out of the church. This is his church. This is a church he's belonged to for years. What a jerk. So this is not a great situation for anybody. Nobody would want to be in this position. It's Of course, it's embarrassing because what you've done, if you're in Andrew's position, is you've kind of given in to, I suppose you could say, your worst instinct. You haven't thought it through. You, you haven't said to yourself, why are they coming to me? Do they really want to pay fair market value? Probably not. You haven't stopped and said to the trustee who approached you, what do you guys really want? You're embarrassed about that. You're embarrassed that you immediately went for the bait. You saw the dollar signs and you went for them. So that's embarrassing, but you're also angry. Okay. So what do you do in that situation? Do you slink off with your tail between your legs? Do you throw a tantrum? Do you stomp away and say, I'm never coming back? Well, that's what he did. But what would somebody with a healthy ego, a healthy sense of self-confidence have done here? Seems to me there are a couple of obvious choices. One is you just move on. You don't say anything. If other people want to gossip about it, if other people want to make a big deal about it, you can't stop them. What happened was just a misunderstanding. Nobody died. Nobody lost a fortune. It was a deal that didn't happen. So what? It's your church. You're not going to let anybody drive you out. You made a mistake. They made a mistake. That's how you learn. You learn from your mistakes. You can't go through life and never make a mistake. And every time you make a mistake, what are you going to do? Quit your church? Move away so you don't have to deal with your neighbors? If you have some kind of misunderstanding with your neighbor, what are you going to do? Sell your house and move to the other side of town? This is life. So that was option number one. Option number two was to ask for a meeting to go in and say to the trustees, let's put this behind us. It's not a big deal. I apologize. I should have figured out what you guys wanted. It's so instinctive in me to try to make money. Please understand, I come from nothing. I've made a lot of money, as you all know, but this is how I operate. And if somebody says, sell me a piece of property and nothing more, that's all they say. I'm going to assume that they want me to quote them the fair market price. And that's what I did. So please understand where I'm coming from. And I'm asking you to understand how I look at this, which is that you guys did not tell me what you wanted to a certain degree, not intentionally. But to a certain degree, you misled me. You could have been clearer. Let's let bygones be bygones. I'm not going to talk about this. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. And, you know, be nice if you guys put it behind you as well. And let's move on. That's the best thing to do. 
but he couldn't he couldn't tolerate confrontation he couldn't tolerate conflict he couldn't tolerate the idea that people would see him as greedy and ungenerous he didn't want to deal with that it was too unpleasant so he avoided it he just dropped out of the church let me talk about a couple other things Remember that when he was bought out of the furniture business, they did an accounting when he was bought out of the furniture business. It was a detailed accounting to get a really good sense of what what the business was worth. And in the course of doing that accounting, they realized that their bookkeeper, who had worked for them for many years, had embezzled $6,000. That was the figure they came to. That was their best guess as to what this guy had stolen from them. And this had happened over the course of many years. I don't know whether that bookkeeper was still working for them when they came to this realization. Obviously, if he was, they fired him. If he had already left, either way, they approached him, whether he was still working for them or whether he had moved on to another job. They approached him and they said, we want the money back. We have the option of prosecuting you. We have the option of going to the district attorney. We want that money back. And so they worked out some kind of deal where he came up with some of the money, but it was a fraction of what he had taken. Borden and his partners were never made whole. They never got full restitution. And I don't believe they reported this to the police. I think that's probably because they didn't want to look foolish. They didn't want the community to say, those guys are lousy businessmen. They can't even keep track of their own business. They have a guy working for them who steals them blind, and they don't catch it for 10 years. That's pretty sad. I'm not going to put Borden on my board of directors if he can't even keep a close eye on his employees. If he's getting ripped off, I don't think he's much of a businessman. So I think they kept this largely secret. And it only came out because after the murder, somebody went to the police and said, you might want to look into this former bookkeeper because he had this unpleasant falling out where he was caught stealing and he may have killed Borden because of this unpleasantness. So somebody was aware that this had happened and somebody went to the police, but it was not common knowledge. How in the world could Borden have not picked up on this? How could he have allowed an employee to steal $6,000 over the course of maybe 10 years and not catch it? And the only reason I can come up with is he didn't want to go to the bookkeeper and say, I need to sit down with you and go over the books and make sure everything's okay. That the prospect of that was so unpleasant to him that He was so worried that this guy would get mad at him, that this guy would argue with him, that this guy would quit, that there'd be some unpleasant confrontation, that he couldn't handle that. I can't think why else he wouldn't have been paying attention. This was a single store, one store, one set of books. It wasn't 25 locations with 25 bookkeepers and 25 sets of books, one set of books. You mean to tell me that Borden couldn't have found the time to sit down and go over the books himself? He couldn't have hired another accountant in Fall River or New Bedford or Providence to go over the books and give him a second opinion? That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. That's the only explanation I can think of. He was willing to have a permanent rupture in his relationship with his sister and brother-in-law over six dollars. And he's not willing to have a confrontation with the bookkeeper over $6,000. I think the combination of having two business partners at that point, plus a bookkeeper, he just thought there are all kinds of ways this can go south. 
there's all kinds of ways that we can start arguing with each other and pointing the finger at each other. And my partners might be mad at me if I go to the bookkeeper and say, I want to see the books and he quits on me. I don't want to deal with it. I'm just going to hope everything goes okay. I'm going to hope nobody's stealing from me. Well, somebody stole from him and stole a lot from him. And he could have stopped this early on if he did random audits or if he audited the books every two or three months, but he didn't. And I can only put this down to my theory that he was avoidant. He didn't like conflict. You think he would have learned his lesson after this incident with the bookkeeper. You think he kept an interest in the real estate, in the retail space for the furniture store, plus the warehouse behind it. And he kept an ownership interest in it. You think he would have said, At that point, I better make sure that we have fire insurance coverage. I better go to my partners, whether it's Mr. Almy or Mr. Wood, and say, can I see the policy just to make sure that we do have coverage? He didn't. Why not? Why, with an investment of this magnitude, why wouldn't you make sure you had insurance coverage? I don't get it. And I can't believe that if this was his property and he didn't have to worry about stepping on somebody's toes and saying, Are you doing your job? I'm sorry. I don't want to imply you're an idiot, but I I insist on seeing the policy. I'm not going to take your word for it. Do you mean to tell me if he didn't have to worry about that, if it was just his building, no partner, he owns it 100%, do you mean to tell me he wouldn't have had fire insurance on that building? I can't imagine. I don't think there's any chance that he would have forgotten to get insurance or let the policy lapse. Well, guess what? The building burned down. It burned to the ground. The whole block burned to the ground and there was no fire coverage. So his investment in that real estate literally went up in smoke. The last thing I want to talk about on the topic of him being avoidant is the business of that daytime burglary, which had occurred a year before. In the summer of 1891, when Mr. and Mrs. Borden were away, probably at their farm, Bridget, Emma, and Lizzie were at home. And during the day, in broad daylight, Somebody went into Mr. and Mrs. Borden's bedroom and stole a fair amount of money from Mr. Borden and stole Mrs. Borden's favorite watch. So Mr. Borden gets back. He finds out. I assume he went and asked his daughters and Bridget, what do you know about this? Did you see anybody? Can you give me any information? They all would have said, we know nothing about it. He went to the police. He told the police what had happened. He asked the police to investigate. And then about a month later, he goes back to them and goes, I don't think you're going to find the thief. Forget about it. And he asks them to drop it. Now, this comes up quite often in the books on the Borden murders. And the general consensus is that Mr. Borden suspected probably Lizzie. He suspected somebody in the home had stolen this and the likely culprit was Lizzie. The way he dealt with this was rather than confront them and say, I think one of you stole this. Somebody knows what happened, and this is really troubling to me. Instead of doing that, he and his wife start leaving the bedroom key on the mantelpiece in the sitting room. If they go up to get something out of the bedroom, they have to get the key from the sitting room, and then they're done, and they come downstairs, and they put the key back. Now, they have other keys. They have a key to the front door. They have a key to the back door. They have a key to the barn. They probably have other keys to other things in and around the house, and those are all on a key ring. They each have key rings. The only key that is on the mantelpiece in the sitting room is the key to his bedroom. And at first, when I read this, and I read this theory that this was his way of sort of telling Lizzie, if he suspected anybody else, telling whoever he thought might have committed this theft, he was on to them. I thought, this is stupid. 
Why not just say to them, why not sit them down and say, I think one of you was involved in this. I can't prove it, but I find it hard to believe that someone got into the house in broad daylight, committed the theft. Nobody heard him. Nobody saw him. He got away that he knew where to go. He knew exactly where to go to get the money and get the watch. I find that hard to believe. He didn't go into anybody else's bedroom. This really disturbs me. I'm really troubled by this. I I hope I'm wrong here, but I think I'm probably right. And if one of you wants to come clean and tell me what happened, I'd really appreciate it. I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to disinherit you. I'm not going to report you to the police, but I would appreciate you telling me what really happened here. He could have done that, but that would have required him to have a potentially unpleasant confrontation. He could have dropped this. He could have said to himself, I don't have proof that any of these three women was involved. I, I can't prove that. I have no hard proof. They deny it. They claim they had nothing to do with it. I might as well just drop it. What's the point of having this linger? I'm never going to get an answer. I, Mrs. Borden and I have to either change the locks or put in a stronger lock or start locking the door. Maybe they hadn't locked their bedroom door up to that point. I don't know. And then keep their bedroom door on their, on their regular keychain. One or the other, either confront them directly and or change the lock or get a better lock or start locking the door and put that bedroom door key on their chain. But what does he do? He leaves the key on the mantelpiece. And basically what he's doing is he's saying to them, I'm on to you. I know you were involved. And every time I come down and get the key to go up to my bedroom or every time I bring the key back, I'm reminding you. I'm reminding you that this is on my mind, that I'm on to you, that I know you guys did something to me, and I'm not going to forget it. And remember that the sitting room was where the family hung out. So I'm sure that Emma and Lizzie were often in the sitting room, and they would have seen him do this, and they would have seen their stepmother do this all the time. They're constantly coming down and getting the key, or they're constantly coming down and putting the key back. I think it's avoidant and passive aggressive. It's avoidant because it's obviously on his mind. It's obviously bothering him. He might as well say something, clear the air and move on, but he doesn't. And I think it's weird. And I think it just adds to the tension. How does that help? How does that help in a in a home where there's distrust, there's anger, there's resentment, there's tension, there's bad feeling and he's reminding his daughters every day that he doesn't trust them, that he thinks they were involved in this theft. I don't see that that helps. All that does is ratchet up the tension. This is a family, I think, that was a lot more dysfunctional than it appears at first glance. And I think this tension, this bad feeling, this resentment, it's festering, it's been going on for years, it continues, it's building. Mr. Borden had plenty of opportunities to address it. He had plenty of ways to address it and to ease the tension. And he just ignores it. He acts like it's not there. He doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to acknowledge it. He doesn't want to do anything. He doesn't even go to his daughters and say, let me set you up in another house. This is a tense environment. It's not fun for you. Let's just figure something out. He doesn't even do that. He would rather not address it. He would rather live with the tension and the anger and the frustration and the hostility. He'd rather do that than address it. And that's pretty screwed up. And that comes back to haunt him. And we'll talk about how and why, especially when we get into the Holmes and Watson part of the podcast. Next time, I think we'll be talking about the other Borden family members. 
And then after that, we'll start moving towards the murders. So we're not too far away. Thanks for listening. I hope you join me again next week. And until then, take care.